to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, April 6th, we are studying Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 38. When some begin to speak of the noble stones and the offerings of the temple, Jesus speaks of the temple's coming destruction and of his own coming with power and great glory. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. I am happy to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Flammy, let's talk context. What do we need to know going into this text from Luke 21? That it's Holy Week, of course. Uh, and uh, so we've already gone through the great procession of Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem with the shouts of Hosanna. And uh, we have uh, the, uh, this idea of Jesus, of course, going into Jerusalem during the day uh, that he teaches in the temple. You know, I mean, where are you going to hear the living uh, voice of God in the flesh? You're going to find it from Jesus. And of course, where the Old Testament promised him to be, that is in the temple. And while he's in the temple preaching and teaching, you can almost uh, feel the tension in the air as the scribes and the Pharisees and the members of the Sanhedrin sort of seethe with hatred and even jealousy against Jesus, who is gathering the people to him. In fact, I think it's St. Luke who earlier said that the people were hanging on to every single one of his words. You know, That was right after uh, St. Luke told us about Jesus's entrance into uh, his entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and after he went to the temple and taught there. Uh, so Jesus, according to, I, I believe it is St. Luke, he, he, he tells us that Jesus would teach in the temple during the day. He would retreat to the Mount of Olives during the evening. And so this is probably holy, what, Tuesday or Wednesday? Wednesday at the latest. I think most uh, scholars would put this these words somewhere probably on Holy Tuesday. We're not really sure what happened on Holy Wednesday. And, uh, and of course, according to St. Matthew, uh, this sermon took place on the Mount of Olives, probably, as one scholar said, as the sun is lowering on the western horizon, it would have seemed as if it was a washing all of Jerusalem in flame, as Jesus is talking about the coming wrath and judgment of God against not only Jerusalem, but the whole world because of sin and how this for the Christians was to be their great moment of redemption. However, this is very interesting to me. This is why I think that Jesus would preach the same sermon more than once. So pastors out there, don't feel too bad. <laughs> if you have to reiterate a theme, right? Just don't use the same exact words. I, Jesus never uses the same exact words, but he does repeat the same themes. And so I could see Jesus preaching this theme once already within the course of the temple. And then probably later that same evening, he speaks about it again. Maybe in more detail, maybe just helping for the disciples to understand more. Uh, and so that's why you have the two different locations. According to St. Mark, this sermon is in the temple. According to St. Matthew, it's up on the Mount of Olives. Hmm. Well, and even the the two audiences, perhaps, I think it's in Matthew and Mark where this conversation is 
it seems is initiated by the disciples, a couple of the disciples or, yeah. or more, more than one. And here it's not as specific, just some speaking and they ask Jesus. So it seems this is even a wider audience than in Matthew and Mark. Correct. Yeah, it, it seems so that Jesus is uh, definitely having a more intimate conversation, like you were saying, according to Matthew and Mark. Uh, here, it, it, like we have the definite impression that he's speaking more generally for the people who were surrounding Jesus at that moment. And this is really interesting because the last words that Jesus has just uh, uh, finished speaking about was this great riddle from the Old Testament, uh, from Psalm 110. You know, uh, uh, So everybody agree that Psalm 110 is about uh, David's son, the Christ. And then how is it that David calls his son his Lord? Right? It doesn't make any sense <laughs> unless the Son is, in fact, divine and the creator of all things and the Word incarnate. Right? Uh, the mm-hmm. Pharisees, the scribes, the members of the Sanhedrin, they only understand things from a very legal point of way or point of view, we might say. Uh, they understand the commandments and doing the tradition of the elders. And they think that religion is performing a, a service at a particular time in a particular way. Uh, Jesus is revealing to them, to the chagrin, that even though they consider themselves the experts in all things Torah, uh, that they don't understand the point, which is not God's commands and men's obedience, but rather God's grace for sinners revealed in the Son of David made flesh uh, and the great redeeming work he would do for all sinners, not for the righteous, but for sinners. And so it is like at this height of tension within the temple, uh, that uh, some that the conversation now comes up about the end of the world, right? It's kind of like Jesus's words are reflecting the mood <laughs> of everybody who's gathered around him. You know, uh, it's really yeah. fascinating in that way how Jesus kind of speaks to the moment. Again, a great preaching tip for all the pastors out there. Well, with with Jesus speaking to the moment, and as you said, he's going to touch both on the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, as well as the end of the world. That's the context within the gospel. Perhaps it's good for us to think about the context in which we live and the context of end times views, that concept of the thought of what happens at the end of the world. There's quite a bit of conflicting testimony out there. Give us just at least a, a brief lay of the land and then help us to make sure we understand the right way to think about the end of the world. Yeah, absolutely. So, I I mean, I am so confused when I listen to other American evangelical Protestant people talk about the end of the world. I believe that for every sort of non-denom church that's out there, they have their own version of end times prophecy interpretation. Uh, Typically, it breaks down into four schools uh, and uh, uh, so there's the dispensational premillennialists. These are the left behind folks who made that book series that was really cheesy. And then they made it even <laughs> cheesier set of movies. Uh, now, these folks, what, so according to mass media like the, and, uh, and secular observers, what they will say are these are the folks who read the Bible literally. That is, and what they mean by that is they take the Bible at face value very, very seriously. Now, we would say, hold on a second. I have a very high view of the Holy Scriptures. It is the Word of God, inspired from beginning to the end, right? Uh, what do you mean? I, I, I don't. I, I believe that I read the Bible literally as well. So what's going on here? Well, what, what they mean is that instead of seeing uh, the imagery of the book of Revelation allegorically and uh, in terms of metaphor, which, I mean, again, it's apocalyptic uh, language, 
And the apocalyptic language was obviously, as explained, is shown to us from Ezekiel or Daniel, metaphors and, and sort of figures of things yet to come. Nevertheless, these folks read uh, uh, passages in the Holy Scripture very uh, literalistically. Uh, so when the book of Revelation talks about a thousand years of the saints reigning, they say there is a literal 1,000 years of the saints reigning. They also make a distinction between like uh, 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 Christ's return. Uh, there's a secret return of Christ at the time of the rapture when the righteous people are snatched out of uh, away from this world. And then there's seven years of tribulation. Uh, and then there's a visible return of Christ, a judgment of sheep and the goats. And then the saints reign for a thousand years. Satan has a little season. And then there's this resurrection of the unjust. It's very complicated. And like I said, everybody has sort of a, a different shade of, uh, of understanding when it comes to this. So there was this one fellow at my first call. I was just, I don't know, I, I think I was reading in the afternoon and he bangs on my office door and I opened it up and he said, he has a huge binder in his hands. And he says, are you a pastor? And I said, yes. And he says, I figured it out. And I said, what did you figure out? And he said, the, the Bible code. I've got to show this to you. I mean, you're the first person that I thought that I should show this to. I said, are you? okay, come into my office, you know, and he comes in and I'm, you know, the young, naive pastor, and I'm willing to listen to anything and anybody because I'm just excited that somebody wants to talk to me. Right. And so for the next two or three hours, he takes me page by page through his, his binder, speaking about the Bible code that he's uncovered, which reveals, get this, not Jesus is crucified for the world's salvation, but the exact date of the end of the world. Mm. You see, mm. um, yeah. he was obsessed with it. And, and, uh, and he spoke about rapture and this tribulation and a visible return of Christ, uh, how the saints will rule visibly on the earth until the final judgment and these sorts of things. And of course I, I took him to that passage in, in revelation. What is it? Revelation chapter 20. And, and it talks about the first resurrection. And I looked at him in the eyes and I said, this is baptism. You're baptized, right? Man, I think he lost it at that point. He just went crazy. He was like, "What are you talking about?" That you know that for me, uh, this the, the language of John is so stylized and, and uh, so re reminiscent of the earlier apocalyptic language that I don't expect any of the numbers to be taken uh, at, mm. at sort of serious face value. But they indicate a sort of reality beyond sort of the literal meaning of of the words, right? Mm. Uh, and it's meant to be that way. Um, you, you know, I mean, the visible description of Jesus in the first chapters of Revelation make that absolutely plain. You know, a sword is coming out of his mouth. You know, I mean, what does that mean? It means that Jesus speaks the two-edged sword of the word, right? And this is his effective means of, of, uh, of not just judging the world according to sin, but saving the world uh, through the proclamation of grace. I mean, so these things have to be thought through. Uh, and, and studied and uh, in a way, in, in such a way that, of course, and this is one of the things I wanted to talk about later on, but I'll just bring it up now. We, these things must be understood within the context of the rest of the New Testament. Uh, and, uh, and we use the clearer passages of the Holy Scripture to interpret the less clear, or, or how shall we say, difficulter, more or more difficult passages mm. of the Holy Scripture. Revelation is hard. Uh, it is. Uh, it, it takes a lot of knowledge of what has been said before, 
in the plainer sections of the Holy Scripture in order to understand the full comfort of the preaching of the forgiveness of sins and also the hope of the saints in that in that book. And oh. and my and I will submit to you, we're not going to talk about Revelation today, but but Revelation has much more to do with the time of the saints as it's lived from the time of the apostles until now than it does about some future uh, sort of uh, date set, impossibly in the future, as we await for like a checklist of 10 things to happen first. That's not what Revelation mm-hmm. is for, is to describe the warfare between unbelief and faith, between Satan and God, between sin and grace right here, right now. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead, Pastor Flamey, and read this text. We've got a lot here to read this morning, and I think as we go through it, a lot of these themes are going to come out, and we're going to see not the the frightening reality that it sounds like that man who came into your office he he was very frightened by this oh yeah absolutely. but 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 Jesus intends these words for the comfort of his disciples and, and I think we're going to see that as we read through this text so again we've got a, a pretty lengthy text this morning from Luke chapter 21 beginning at verse 5 while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings he said As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That's our text for today. That's Luke 21, verses 5 to 38. Pastor Flamey, just as trying to get a, a handle on this whole text, you, know, you said from the beginning, we're going to hear Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem and also the end of the world. How do, how do you know where he's talking about what? I mean, how do, how do you divide this text up? Where is he talking about Jerusalem? Where is he talking about the end of the world? Are there is there overlap? How, how do we get a handle on all that? Uh, yeah, so when he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near, right? He talks about the fall of Jerusalem and then the, the final state of Jerusalem in verse 24 as being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, right? And that's an indefinite period of time. And it's after that that Jesus starts talking about not just the sign of Jerusalem, but also the sign that you see, the signs that you see in nature, both upon the earth and in the heavens, and how these things are a visible reminder that the Son of God is coming quickly. Uh, it's interesting uh, that you also have towards the end of the lesson, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little more deeply later, uh, where Jesus says that all the signs that are necessary to take place for the Son of Man's return will be fulfilled within the generation of the apostles. That's true both of the destruction of Jerusalem and also for the inten intense uh, anticipation that Jesus will come quickly. Uh, and uh, so I think that that's how we, that's how we read this. Uh, we see that Jesus wants to talk about the end. And so he starts sort of close to home. He's speaking about Jerusalem's particular end, uh, especially as it, we know it historically in the year 70 AD, uh, you know, surrounded by Roman armies and destroyed by, by Titus. Uh, and also, he wants us to see this as a foreshadowing, so to speak, or a prefiguring of God's wrath poured out on the world on the last day because of its unbelief, because of the wrath that, that falls on all, uh, all people, unless we are reconciled to God through the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm. With that introduction, then let's let's think about the context in which Jesus says these words. They're looking at the temple and and they're talking about the temple. They're particularly impressed by the noble stones and the offerings. the The temple, as I understand it, was a very impressive structure, architecturally speaking, visually speaking, let alone the theological significance for the people of Israel. And so, to marvel at this building is not really that surprising. But I think what Jesus says about the stones being turned over would have been quite shocking for his hearers at this moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was from Jesus's disciples. I mean, they, I think, wasn't in John's gospel where St. John records it was the disciples who marveled at the stones of the temple and, and uh, how beautiful it was, right? 
And there Jesus took the opportunity to talk about how this temple uh, really foreshadows the true temple, which is Jesus's body. Jesus said that tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And there he was not talking about the, you know, the stones of Herod's temple, uh, but instead the temple of his body, of course. So, I mean, as beautiful and as wonderful as the temple must have seemed, uh, they, it wasn't it wasn't meant to last. I mean, it was built by uh, a sinner. Uh, Herod sort of greatly improved the second temple and greatly uh, adorned it with, with uh, precious stones and beauty, right? But that didn't make it any more holy, right? Uh, what makes the temple of God, those stones, holy and sets them apart for sacred use and for divine service is the fact that it has God's word, and it has the sacrifices that we're pointing forward to the true and ultimate sacrifice that Jesus offered up through his body on the cross. When Jesus completes his divine service upon the cross, then the temple must give way to the greater divine service that has been performed, right? Uh, the author to the Hebrews writes in, at such a time where the temple is yet to be destroyed. At least that's as far as I can understand it when I read Hebrews. It seems like the temple's still there. The divine services are going on daily. But the author to the Hebrews also wants us to step away from the temple and the grandeur of things that we can see with our eyes uh, to worship Jesus who has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us. You know? uh, and, so you're, and so it's Jesus is helping them, uh, his disciples and the people who are gathered there, not to become too attached to a building, so to speak, but instead to worship God by faith, according to his word, especially the word as it's preached uh, by Christ himself, who is bearing their flesh and blood. Uh, you know, I, this reminds me, when my dad was a pastor in a certain city in the Midwest, his call was to a, a downtown church. And, uh, and I remember that it, it was decided before my dad took this call to this church. It was a beautiful old church, you know, that was in the middle of downtown area. And, but, you know, the church had been sold. And uh, the church was going to relocate sort of in the suburbs of the city, closer to where the members of the church actually lived. And, and I remember the spiritual conflict that caused. I could see it even as a young boy, the spiritual yeah. conflict that caused within the hearts of the saints of that church uh, to know that the, the stones of that building were about to be torn down. And, it, and they wept. Uh, some of them were shaken to the core of their faith, right? And, and, and I get it. I mean, because here God has used through these stones and then this place, uh, this is where this is a place that God has used and this structure God has used to bless many for the baptism of many children, right? And even adults for the preaching to many, for their consolation and hope, uh, for the committal of many uh, uh, departed saints uh, as, we, as, as we say our final farewells to them in the hope of the resurrection. Uh, uh, this is where Jesus gave his body and his blood, you know, uh, but at the same time, uh, just because the stones are torn down, that doesn't mean that we have somehow lost God's grace, his favor, uh, and indeed uh, the word. And Jesus assures us, this is part of the theme of this sermon that he preaches concerning the end times, that the world will pass away, but his word endures forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just the, you know, of course he's going to say that the stones are going to be torn down because that's literally what they were, but it, it very much connects, I think, to what he's preached previously during Holy Week when he quotes from Psalm 118 concerning himself about 
he's the stone yes. that's been rejected, right. but now he's the cornerstone. Exactly right. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you could almost see it. I mean, testing out the two religions, you know, there's the religion of faith in Christ, right? Uh, and he is the stumbling block for the Jews. He himself who, who fulfills the Holy Scriptures. And yet they love the, how do we say it? The externals of their Jewish religion oh. more than they love the, the, the promised Savior that, that they, by, with their lips, say that they wanted and they were looking forward to. And so the Lord prevents, you know, that kind of hardness of heart for each and every one of us. I mean, this, there are different temptations for different kinds of people, right? And just because we belong to a church, we have membership in the church, doesn't mean that we're immune from temptation. It's not like I'm, I have an easier time of it because I'm a member at Emmanuel Lutheran Church. If anything, it's, it's much more difficult for me because I have the sort of the externals of going to church every Sunday, right? Of even maybe attending a Bible class or saying nice words to my pastor, but the temptations are especially subtle and sharp. I mean, at what point, and you know what happens, you, at what point do you really, does your religion really become not so much what the pastor preaches, but the fact that things are done in a certain way, right? Hmm. At what point do we, do we say that uh, my church has this kind of people who come and gather here, who are members here, uh, to the point where like if a different kind of person comes to worship, it offends me to the point where I leave until they leave. And then I'll come back. Mm. You know, these are the particularly sharp and subtle temptations for Lutherans, uh, died in the will Lutherans, uh, who go to church. You know, from cradle to grave. Uh, just because you belong to the church doesn't mean you're immune from Satan's temptations and from, or, and for losing the true religion of hearing the word of God and believing it. You know, just as the Pharisees fell into these sorts, and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin fell into their obsession with the externals of their Jewish religion. So we can also fall into this obsession uh, with this particular building, these kinds of people, with having this kind of a pastor even, <laughs> of uh. having a Bible study at this time, every every year, this day of the week, right? It's, it's, a, it's something that I have discovered as a pastor that I'm always on the watch for, and I'm always trying to gently, as gently as I possibly can, uh, remind people why they are in church. It's not be, for the sake of the building. That definitely took blood, sweat, and tears to put it up where it is. But it's that you're there for the sake of the of Christ. You know, the living temple, the stumbling block. Right. Uh, the Lord grant that we don't stumble upon Him, but rather that we are built up upon Him. You know. Yes. Yes. Amen to that. And and the Lord gives that preaching to His disciples to the crowd here in Luke twenty one. We're going to pick up more of his preaching on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Luke 21 with Pastor Brian Flaming. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, April 6th. We're studying Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 38 with Pastor Brian Flammy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the break, we were talking about how Jesus speaks of the destruction of the temple. The stones there will be thrown down, but he is the true cornerstone of his church. The people ask, when is this going to happen and what will be the sign? And as Jesus begins this extended sermon, he starts talking about various things that they will see, and he warns them about them. He warns them about false teachers and wars and famines and persecutions. Uh, What's Jesus doing in this opening part of the sermon? Again, in this opening part of the sermon, he wants us to be prepared uh, for when the old worship of the temple is taken away and the new worship of the divine service through baptism and preaching the Lord's Supper will come to be. Uh, he wants us through also in seeing these signs to be prepared for his imminent return at any moment, right? And so he says, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, which means, especially for his disciples leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, as they saw the animosity and the antagonism between the zealots and the Romans uh, raise, rise up into a fevered pitch, that this would not be something that would distress them. It would not be something that would cause them anguish or grief, but they would say, this, even this is under Christ's lordship. He saw this would happen. He he is still Lord of history in this moment, and this is necessary. It must happen this way. The same is also true of not just in seeing politics uh, but and how uh, uh, people go to war against one another, but also as they see signs. Upon the earth, uh, naturalistic uh, dis- destructions, you know, like earthquakes, famines, pestilences. Is there a difference between a pandemic and a pestilence? Have you ever figured this out? I'm not positive if there is one. I'll Google it while you keep talking. <laughs> All right. So as, as the folks see earthquakes, famines, and pestilences, instead of these things being evils in and of themselves, Jesus has sanctified these things as signs. Uh, signs that uh, must take place first before the destruction of Jerusalem, and then second, things that must take place leading up to his second return. And that's why he says there's going to be terrors and great signs in the heaven. Uh, I remember I was talking to a lady yesterday, and she was telling me, do you know that last year we had four blood moons? And I said, no. And she was like, do you know what that means, right? And I said, foolishly, because sometimes I'm not too smart yet as a pastor, I said, that we had four blood moons? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she was like, no, that Jesus is coming quickly. And so I tried at that point to kind of take, is, 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 I said, slow down. All right. All right. Now, and I even to open up to uh, a parallel passage to this, and we read it very slowly and together. And I said, this means that since the generation of the apostles, Jesus said that he can appear at any moment. So there's four blood moons, but probably a hundred years ago, they were counting several other celestial phenomena. And, and saying, this is it. These are the precise signs that we were looking for before the end. Now Christ will come, right? Mm. But of course, they were trying to do the very thing that Jesus always warns against. He says, I come as a thief in the night, right? Uh, he says, if the servants of the house had known when their master would, would return, don't you think they would have been ready? And so Jesus assures us that he comes in an hour and at a moment that we do not know. Uh, Not even the angels of heaven know. Not even Jesus in his state of humiliation. uh, 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 He uh, doesn't use his full omnipotence in that moment. No. Uh, But instead, he says, the Father alone knows. 
and it will come at a time when everybody least expects it. So this is what I try to tell folks is probably when you think things are most mundane, when things are going on as they're supposed to be going, probably uh, during a global good time, as opposed to sort of a fever pitch of like fear and anxiety. I mean, that's probably when Jesus will come back. And you remember how Jesus also reminds us, I think this one is, was this earlier in Luke's gospel where he says, just as it was in the days of Noah. Yeah. Yeah. Luke 17. Yeah, Luke 17. Again, that's Palm Sunday entering into Jerusalem. Just as it was in the days of Noah, the people weren't like wringing their hands with anxiety over what was happening. Instead, the signs were surrounding them. The preacher of righteousness, Noah, was saying, repent. God's judgment is coming. See, it's even here. And yet they were they were living their lives as they always had. They were calloused and hardened against God's word and against the signs uh, that God had given, you know, according to his word. And that's why they were consumed by the flood. And that's uh, uh, and that's why they weren't members of the church who ended up being in that moment in time, only eight souls large. And so, and so Jesus uh, wants us to, to see these things that are happening and not think to ourselves, nah, these are signs of God's disfavor, or these are signs of, of, uh, uh, of the end of all things right now. I mean, it could be, uh, and Jesus wants us to see these signs and to remember instead that all these things must take place, uh, that we shouldn't be surprised by these things. And that, uh, and just as things are, have been bad in the past, so they're bad now, and they will be bad in the future. And that causes us always at every moment uh, to, again, look up into the sky and to watch for our redemption to come near, right? Mm-hmm. And, as, and, yeah. and, and the old, like, I don't know, you re, depending on how much uh, biblical theology that you read, especially uh, sort of higher biblical scholarship, they make a big deal about how the first Christians uh, were living in hyper expectancy of Jesus's imminent return, right? And so the apostles have found it necessary, uh, especially Paul, when he said, hey, if you're going to eat, you got to work. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know Jesus is coming, but that doesn't mean that you get to despise the Ten Commandments, right? It anticipate, you have to fulfill your vocations that God has called you to, even as you wait for Jesus to come. Uh, and so uh, uh, for, for modern higher biblical scholarship, they like to say that, uh, that people used to live in, in this sort of intense expectation of Jesus's return. And then after a while, they figured out that Jesus wasn't coming back. And that's when the church became sort of a more worldly institution. I don't really buy that story. I don't really buy that history. Uh, instead, I, I think that you find in the very best preachers, like a St. Augustine, or a Martin Luther, uh, or even a CFW Walther, that these are also Christians who live in intense expectation of Jesus's return, right? Mm. They're not waiting for things to to boil over to the point where the world like melts all the way through and then and only then will they say that Jesus is going to come back. But they say like today, yes, even today, your Savior may be here. So watch Mm. and, and be ready. Yeah. I mean, even in the middle of this conversation or, or the middle of the sermon that, that he's preaching, the pastor's preaching that, that the Lord may return then, you know, look out, look out the window a moment and, and perhaps, yeah, perhaps he will come then. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about. I, I mean, we, we say this in the creed that in the Nicene creed, you know, I look for the resurrection. Yes. I, I look for it. 
and, and if I don't know if they're if that, I don't know what the opposite of a, a hyper expectancy might be, but but the opposite of that is maybe what what the church today is suffers from occasionally. Yeah, despondency, the thought that well, these five or six things have to happen first. Russia has to invade Ukraine. <laughs> Apparently, we Check. have we're waiting for the microchips, right? That that still is yet to come. There are all kinds of things that, and and you see what that kind of preaching does, though it destroys faith in Christ now. You see, what does it do? It sets back the time of judgment so that Satan can have his little season now in your life. And you say, you know what? There's still four or five signs left to be fulfilled. Uh, And so as it gets closer, then I'll really start living, you know, a Christian life and putting my life together, getting right with God. No, now is the favorable time, as St. Paul says, right? Now is the time to hear the word of the Lord, to repent of sin, of course, and to believe the gospel. So every baptized Christian from the moment of baptism is living in a moment where they may see Jesus face to face. First of all, because their lives may be taken from them in that moment. I mean, this happens to people all the time. We don't really dwell on it, but we're all mortal. God may require our souls of us this very hour. Or the Jesus may end all things for everybody at the same moment, right? For some reason, uh, some of these uh, dispensational premillennialists like to talk about uh, secret and invisible returns of Christ. I, I... It doesn't make any sense to me, especially when Jesus says, when I return, when I return, it will be like lightning that flashes from the east to the west, you Mm -hmm. know, and and when the angels also say in the same ways you saw Jesus ascend into heaven visibly and with glory, you will also see him descend from heaven. Not secretly. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, uh, Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, when people say, hey, hey, Jesus has come back. He's in this back room. Come and come and, and let's go see him together. Jesus says, don't go. This is going to happen, but just don't do it because that's not me. Everybody will know in that moment. It's kind of like uh, a couple of nights ago. I'm pretty sure we had a couple of tremors here in New Mexico, which doesn't happen very often, but we do have caves underneath us. And from time to time, I'm pretty sure they collapse. Mm. And, uh, And so the house shook. And I woke up and I could feel the house shaking. And my immediate thought was, is Jesus here? <laughs> I looked out the window. I'm like, no, I don't see him. All right, I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> but that's, You would have seen him. Yeah, if right, it, exactly. If it had been him. It's more than just that there's an earthquake or that Russia invades Ukraine. It's that, again, you can see the Son of Man, is, to quote Jesus from our text, the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Mm. Right? Mm. And so he says, now, when you see these things beginning to take place, Even within your own generation, the generation of the apostles themselves, he says, and this is the great and wonderful preaching of this text that that comforts us the most. He says, straighten up and raise your heads, not because your destruction is here or not because God's finally going to get you for your sins, right? But because your redemption is drawing near. Uh, This is wonderful that we have been bought with a price, the price of Jesus's blood, and it is sufficient to atone for our sin, and yes, even for the sin of the world. And so for those who believe in him, right, for the day of Christ's return is not the end, but rather the beginning, you know, that where our souls are because of its first resurrection through baptism and faith, now our bodies will also follow. And we will not only know that we are uh, glorified through Christ, but we will be able to, to see with our eyes the glory both of Christ and of the saints on that day. 
Talk a little bit about Jesus' prediction concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. You mentioned it's in verses 20 to 24, mm. and the importance of the fact that he identifies this a good, what, 30, 40 years ahead of time. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I was just mentioning to you, of course, before uh, we, we started the, the program today, that from this old church agenda published by uh, Concordia Publishing House back in 1922, it was all in German, uh, they felt it necessary— for the ten, at the on the tenth Sunday uh, after the feast of the Holy Trinity, to have like a brief section of Josephus printed out to be read from the uh, uh, from like you know the lecterns, and the reason why is this not because that Josephus is an inspired and inerrant teacher he's not of course but what does he do he shows how the words that Jesus spoke in the A D thirties was fulfilled in A D seventy perfectly that Jesus spoke as uh, uh, a true prophet. And so uh, this, this uh, text from Josephus was read out loud in the churches is kind of a point of apologetics. I mean, it's, you can imagine how easy it would be to think to yourself, well, Jesus just says these things. I mean, who's to know if they have really come to pass or they haven't come to pass, right? Uh, not so for the old Lu- Missouri Synod Lutherans. I mean, they apparently were rather convinced that uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 was an irrefutable proof of the veracity of Jesus's words. Now, this, gi- this gives a kind of historical certainty of what Jesus says is true, a historical certainty that he is a true prophet. But as I remind uh, people that I talk to about apologetics from time to time, historical certainty is not the same thing as saving faith, right? We can't use we can't use Josephus to convert souls, <laughs> you know. That's right. Instead, Josephus removes the doubt from our hearts. Right? It crucifies our flesh and showing by showing us that why do you doubt? Jesus could see these things were going to happen. He just spoke with absolute clarity about the Roman armies uh, that surrounded Jerusalem, uh, that uh, made the people uh, around Jerusalem flee, right, uh, uh, and who brought such destruction that it would be terrible for the women caught and, and those who were pregnant caught within the walls, right? Uh, there's, the, of course, the very disgusting and sad story of how uh, the, the parents and, and, uh, were, were even reduced by the great famine uh, within the city walls to eat their children. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. the, if you read Josephus and, and hear the descriptions of how horrible it was for those who persisted in the rebellion against Rome, uh, you can see it's biblical in proportion, right? Like you can't, you don't read stories about this that with this sort of like horrendousness, this, this, uh, this sort of, uh, uh, I don't know. It, it, it makes me uh, send shivers down my spine just to know that human beings mm. can do this to other human beings and that people can suffer to this, to this extent, right? Uh, and yet this is a foreshadowing of, of course, God's uh, uh, wrath against all sin and unbelief and for those who defiantly resist the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, who desire to be, uh, to, who desire to stand on their own feet without the Redeemer and to meet their God on their own terms, right? Instead of having the redemption drawing near, instead they have wrath. So this does two things. It, it makes us, of course, fear God, uh, to, to know that uh, such destruction awaits those who, who reject Christ and the word, but it also, uh, but it also grants us a measure of comfort to know that 
uh, Jesus is a true prophet and the Lord of history. And even though the destruction that befell Jerusalem on that day was sufficient to spread over the face of the earth and to consume the world and to end it on that in those years, yet for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the elect, Jesus uh, pushes pause on the wrath that's being poured out so that you can hear the gospel and believe it, so that your friends can hear the gospel and believe it, so your children can hear the gospel and believe it and be saved. And God be praised that we have a stay on the world's execution. Think about that. That that even though uh, God is just and righteous and certainly this world deserves instant destruction because of its great and many sins, yet for the sake of the church and for those who will hear the word of God and believe it, uh, Jesus waits uh, to come back. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that we get to try to game out like oh, how many more potential believers are there out there. And if I figure that out, and then I can figure out when Jesus is going to come back. No, no. Uh, the number of the elect is a number that belongs only to God, right? It does not belong to us. So what's given for us to do as Christians, both as preachers and as hearers, is to be faithful, uh, to turn away from our sins, to hear the gospel, and to live in that that expectation of Jesus uh, uh, return at any moment and teaching our children the same, you know, we want, if something terrible happens, we want to live in such a way that we're looking up into the sky, praying, Lord, come quickly, you know, because even though the world fears its destruction, we as the saints, right? For us, it can only be for our good. It, uh, it is only for the world. It's the end. And like I said before, for us, it's the beginning. Oh. We've got about nine minutes just to, as a time marker for you, Pastor Flamey, and I want to make sure we get to talk about some of the most important words Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And, and leading up to that, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the fig tree. Oh, yeah. Help us into that that part of the text, because that seems to really be very central to what he's saying in this whole sermon. Yeah, so Jesus is, a, is of course, the master preacher. Uh, and we, uh, as pastors, can learn much from him. Not only does he give you sort of the facts, uh, the truth of what is about to happen. He also then uses an illustration to impress those facts and that truth upon the human heart and mind. And so he says, look at the fig tree, right? And all the trees, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So when you see the wars and somebody says, well, this is a sign that the end is coming, you're going to say, yeah, of course. And so was World War II and World War I, right? And so was the 30 years war. What's your point? Uh, and if somebody says, well, there's a great pandemic that's gripping the whole world. This is a sign that Jesus must be coming soon. You're going to say, of course it is. All these things that are happening in the world, the, the earthquakes, uh, the great anxiety of the nations and the fear of people and the lovelessness of people, all of these things are reminders to the Christians that we should be ready, right? Yeah, so the world is the fig tree. Uh, the, the earthquakes and the wars and the rumors of wars, uh, the, uh, uh, these are the leaves that are coming out because summer is near. I love the, that Jesus speaks not about uh, you know, the, the beginning of winter, right? The beginning mm. of like a time of like coldness and death. Instead, because he's speaking to the saints here, he says that summer is near. The summer is the time of, of life, the time of light, the time of warmth, 
And, and so Jesus wants us to see these signs without fear. You know, there's only one thing in this world that we must fear. <laughs> and, he's not, and he's not even of the world. He is the creator of the world. You know, we are to fear God and love and trust in him above all things. Uh, which means that, uh, let's say we have to live through a second pandemic. I know it's the, like the last thing you all want to hear, right? Oh, there's going to be COVID part five. <laughs> what iteration <laughs> are we at right now, right? But even as these things happen, instead of being an opportunity uh, to retreat into our homes, to lock our doors and to wring our hands with anxiety, as Christians, this is always a time to worship, uh, mm. to seek out God's word and the company of the saints, to hear the word, to receive the blessings of the sacraments, and to live in anticipation that Jesus is coming, right? Uh, mm. uh, and, and if the pandemic catches up with you, if the earthquake causes the ground underneath you to open up so you fall in, right? If you got, get caught in the crossfire between two armies, again, for, for the world, it, may, it is loss because they've lost you, a fine human being, uh, a Christian, but for you, it is gain. You gain Christ. Uh, you gain eternal life, right? Uh, uh, and so this is how we should uh, treat these things that are happening in the world, even if it means immediate danger to us. To not be afraid, but, uh, but to remember that we have a reconciled God, a loving God who sent his son uh, to save us. Uh, and remember, it's not the, the face of an angry judge that you will see on the last day, but the face of your crucified and risen Savior. And he will come with love. You know, the world will wail because they don't know him. You know him. And so when Jesus comes, you will rejoice. Mm, yeah, yeah. You will see his face, the the wounds in his hands that mark him as your crucified Savior. What what joy that will be. Mm. Pastor Flamey, what about verse 32, mm. where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. What does, what does that mean? Uh, this is the ultimate apologetic against our dispensational premillennialist friends. They're, they're, I mean, I think no kidding are looking for very specific events in time and space to happen before Jesus comes. Here, remember these extremely clear words from Jesus. And he means these words to be used to help us interpret other passages that speak about the end of things. That this generation, the generation of the apostles, and the disciples and those who are hearing Jesus will not pass away until all has taken place. And it's true. All of the signs that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem, even the very destruction of Jerusalem, that every sign that was necessary to happen for Christ to come again has happened. Uh, which means that, uh, uh, you know, for, uh, for you and your life, and as you, as you go about your day and as you go through your devotions, you uh, hopefully uh, uh, will begin to realize uh, that this is the day that you may see your maker face to face, that you may see the, mm. the loving, smiling face of your Savior. And, it, and I believe, I really, really believe that if you think in this way, if you have this attitude, it changes things. It changes how you speak to your children. Uh, probably Saturday and Sunday traveling sports leagues are no longer going to be as important, just as a suggestion. Probably going to church on Sunday is going to take on so much more importance. Probably engaging in family devotions is going to be so much more important. Because again, you want to be gathered to Jesus together as a family, right? And so let us gain the watchfulness that Jesus is in, in encouraging us uh, to have, right? And to put away this dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of life. Uh, do you know what dissipation means, by the way? 
You're going to have to help me with that one. <laughs> Dissipation is what frat boys do on college uh, uh, frat houses. You know, they, they, they drink too much, they're lazy, and they fail all their classes. That's dissipation. Uh, don't be like that. Instead, remember your Lord. Remember he is coming and do the work that he has given you to do while it is day before the night comes. And Jesus says, and when the night comes, no one can work, right? Hmm. When that comes, there's not going to be a time for repentance. So repent now, today. Go to church today. Talk to your pastor today. Hear the gospel for your comfort today. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, all of this is true because of what Jesus says there in verse 33, that heaven and earth, this creation passes away, but his words never will. With, with about two with about two minutes, Pastor Flame, I use that verse to help us wrap up this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's great to know that uh, creation is, again, given over to changeableness. Is, or how would you say it uh, using this uh, philosophical language? Mutability? <laughs> yes, mutability. Right. Creation is mutable. It is subject to change. And and even in this world post-fall, it's subject to destructive change. So instead of the, seeing the world kind of progress towards a golden, enlightened age, we with our eyes see the opposite, which is funny because it seems like the propaganda of the elites out there wants us to believe that we're moving closer and closer every day to a golden age of, of peace and tranquility and uh, human happiness. That is absolutely false. Uh, mm. Just as it has been from the generation of the apostles to our own time, the world is wearing out, right? Uh, the garment is, is wearing thin, it's frayed on the edges. Uh, instead of having the strength of our, of our fathers, we find ourselves weak, uh, enfeebled, right? And so we need now more than ever the help and the strength of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we cling fast to Jesus' word. The world changes, but the word of God never changes. It is uh, the, the word that was preached through the apostles is the same word of Christ and forgiveness that is preached through the apostles, which is the same word which is preached from your pastors in their pulpits, right? And that's why instead of holding fast to the world and putting our trust, our fear, love, and trust in the world, we put our fear, love, and trust in Christ alone and in his word, right? Pastor Brian Flamey is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us today with Luke 21, verses 5 to 38. Pastor Flamey, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 21 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.